We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. This is number five in the series of culture podcasts we are doing alongside World Strides Excel. They are the industry leader in international soccer tours with over 15 years experience delivering tours for a wide range of teams, uh, both for coaches and for taking their teams over. Easily done, you pick the country and their experts will customize the trip. That includes competitive matches, training sessions with the coaches, tickets to the big games, sightseeing and much more. They also provide a high level of quality support and service, including financial assistance, liability coverage, hassle-free travel as well. So, in addition to these podcasts, we're also working alongside World Strides to bring the first modern soccer coach education tour coming up in February 2019. So we're working on the schedule at the minute, putting together coaching clinics, visits to the academy, meeting some really influential people, and then, of course, checking out Barcelona, the new camp, a good match. I really wanted to do Spain for a long time, so excited about this year. Um, Checking out the academy, the coach development there, what they're doing, um, how they're so far ahead of the rest of us in some areas. Uh, So excited to go over there with a group of coaches who are keen to do the same. And we'll have more information on that coming up and how to get involved uh, in the near future. So our guest for this podcast is Guido Searden. He is the first team performance coach and under-19 assistant at Fortuna Siddard, who are in the Dutch Eredivisie. The majority of our culture podcasts have been with US coaches or English coaches that have that have gone to different areas. And this one is is a little bit of a different angle we're coming from. So Guido is a Dutch coach. He studied in Liverpool, England. He was the then assistant coach at Cape Town, City FC in South Africa, uh, where he was also the head of sports science. He went to Dubai as the lead academy fitness coach with one of the clubs over there. Then went to Saudi Arabia with Al Halai Saudi Football Club and then took the role with Fortuna Siddard over the summer. So on top of that there, on top of that travel, he's also done his coaching license with the Australian FA. So he's a big believer in evidence-based approach to coaching and involving the training methodology and then supporting it with a hard-working and smart culture. So a really holistic picture. He wants to paint with his teams. Uh, Really, really interesting insight. You're going to love this here. A great example of how to diversify how you think and challenge the way you think about the game and how cultures are influencing us and then how we can then influence a culture either at youth level or professional level. So really enjoyed this. We talk about the role of science and training, of course, one of my favorite topics, and then the challenge of coaching in different languages. First time we've ever spoke about that. And then tactical periodization. Uh, Guido attended the international conference this summer. So a lot of good stuff and good insight there. So 
love to hear your thoughts on this as always. Please, please let me know on Twitter at Gary Kernine, on Instagram at Gary Kernine. Let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. Here's Guido. Thank you so much for joining me this morning on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Really excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. First question, can you talk about your, your football philosophy uh, and what shaped it growing up? Yeah, sure. Well, definitely. Um, well, I started coaching when I was 16 and then uh, got a bad knee injury on my 17th and then got more interested in studying sports science alongside the coaching side of it. Basically, to uh, have the sports science guiding my coaching from that point of view. Um, eventually grown into a master's and did some uh, research into decision-making and uh, training structures in youth football, alongside uh, also studying the physical side of football, implementing sports science and having the players performing well in the field. So having coming from a playing, uh, playing background, not professionally, but coaching and then combining sports science basically led me to like training as sport specific as possible and having in terms of my philosophy i i like to see the the game as complex and the system as holistic so combining tactical technical physical and mental elements in almost every aspect of training alongside uh, knowing the culture uh, of the country and the club obviously that you're working uh, at which has a huge impact of yeah, on your work and your players and the staff that you work with so that's basically in a nutshell uh, my philosophy of working and like working in, uh, and coaching in football you said in, in a blog i read that you research has shown that young practitioners tend to focus more on sessions and the content and the what than on the philosophy, which would be the, ha the how and the why. And it takes approximately 10 years to develop a decent philosophy that you're comfortable in working with. And I thought, wow, this is, this is interesting because it was a, a, a blog that was geared towards self-reflection. Um, yeah. can, you, can you talk about the importance of self-reflection in your journey and how that process works for you personally? Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, I had the luck of working in, in different cultures and like coming from a Dutch background, Dutch people tend to be pretty direct. <laughs> and uh, the first thing I learned also when I'm going over to England is that um, working with a senior uh, university team coming from a youth uh, structure is that managing and coaching is something different. Um, so there I definitely learned learned it a little bit the hard way in terms of that it was more about managing players in terms of and, and compared to teaching and more looking at what is required instead of what you want to implement. Uh, it's obviously got to have a right combination of both, but if you want to do things that are not requested, then you're yeah, then heads going to clash and then you run into a brick wall and you're never going to go further as a coach and the players will never enjoy it and the team will not perform either. Um, so those kind of things is, is what I ran into and reflected on and tried to change because, uh, to suit the people that I'm working with. The same thing when I went uh, to the Middle East, um, where there's a different way of working and people are not always as straightforward as what I was used to from my uh, 
uh, yeah, own environment back in, back home in Holland. So you had to find ways uh, around that to find out if people were really happy with how you did things and not speaking the same language as the people you're working with. It was also a big thing. Like I've coached eight, nine year olds who didn't speak a word of English. And then my coach philosophy came at hand again, is that trying to make the game the teacher instead of making me more important than, than the session. And that, that's been a huge impact on my, on my way of coaching. And I took that uh, along to South Africa as well, where there's more of a similar environment as the Middle East, where people are not always straightforward and tell you what, what it's like. And that those are things that you have to deal with. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question completely, but those kind of things is what you reflect on and you, you try to, yeah, see what's needed from you as a coach, from a coaching point of view, but also from a person point of view, because each yeah, person comes from a different culture. And so you have to deal with that and try to see how you can, yeah, trigger, the, trigger those people and then still get the right outcome for the team yeah very interesting so it, it also it almost looks like you're constantly assessing and reassessing your environment and your role in it um yeah how do you is there a daily process in which you reflect on that do you sit down at the end of the day and write do you have a coffee and think or what, how does that work well i definitely learned that working in professional football there's not always much time to actually and relax um but that's definitely uh what I've been doing more and I've also been reading some more stuff on stoicism and mindfulness and meditation. So I definitely take some time during the day to actually reflect and okay, what has happened? What could I have done different? And sometimes I'm a little bit too hard on myself, but I think if you yeah, put it in the right perspective, you'll grow as a person and as a coach. So yeah, there's not always that I get the time during the day that I actually reflect but definitely at least twice a week or in the morning. Normally I set myself goals or targets, what I want to achieve. And I put that also in my weekly planner. So there are certain days where certain things are more important than others. At what stage of your coaching development did you come across tactical periodization? And then how did that impact your journey? Um, I visited Real Madrid Youth Academy in 2013. I think that was the first time I got in touch with it. Um, yeah, so they basically explained their coaching philosophy and coaching methodology. And that's the first time I got in touch with it. And then bought the Spanish book by Javier Tamarit about tactical periodization and started studying Spanish to understand the book. <laughs> which uh, before I managed to read the book completely, it was translated to English. So. Yeah, that's what I got it. <laughs> yeah, so that was a nice one. Um, yeah, so that's, I think 2013 was the first time, in like uh, maybe January 2013 was the first time I got in touch with it. And then later on, I got a job in Saudi Arabia to, yeah, to play around with it with younger age groups and trying to develop my own yeah, playing principles and philosophy uh, things like that so that's when I really started it's funny because a lot of coaches something grips them tactically it's it's usually at the pro level but it sounds like yours was at the academy level yeah 
was it the yeah. was it the sessions was it the structure was it the means of communication what what was there a specific thing that you that you were like wow this is something that i've got to get on um the way i liked is that um the thing with tactical periodization is that it's not just your playing principles but everything around it like the philosophy of the club the the culture which i already mentioned which is a big thing um yeah and then from there on they just not had they it's what it was not just the principles that was the most important thing that i picked up there it was the whole philosophy of the club which was linked to those principles like they the club had like three colors and then the principles for the younger age groups was like in white and then the whole building and the uh, change move was also white for that level and then the next level they basically had like three tiers so like the first tier was like a youngest age group and the middle tier had a different color i think it was like gold uh, and those uh, playing principles were also linked in that color and then the next step was like the, uh, on the 19s and higher age groups which was like in purple and then the next year was like basically the playing ground the first and so everything around them was based that on their way of working and their playing principles and in Saudi I just got interested in developing my own principles like really starting to think okay what are the key things that I want to see in my team when they play so, for example, a quick transition was for me a key thing to implement. So there was always a transition moment in our training session. That was also related to the training uh, size of the pitch because we had a artificial field about 40 by 20 meters or 45 by 20 meters for like 28 kids to work on. So I had to play around with those um, structures to get the most yeah, playing minutes for each kid in the training session. So from there on, it was just the, like the playing principles that I started to develop. And then later on, uh, when I got more on the physical side with the first team, then it was more, how do you relate those playing principles now, the communication between three lines, two lines, or cooperation between one line, implemented in a weekly and monthly structure in the first team. You detail on your coaching philosophy that you combine the tactical and technical, mental, physical, holistic approach into sound yeah. training sessions full of player enjoyment, which will lead to improvement on team and individual level. Um, yeah. Love this, love this. Uh, the, the, the word that jumped out at me was enjoyment because yeah. you, usually for a coach to define a philosophy, that word doesn't really creep in there. Um, how would you define it for a player? Well, the key thing is for me, like everybody started playing the game because they love it. And if you don't enjoy what you do, you drop out. And yeah, I think great enthusiasm into coaching and like working with young age groups is, is the greatest way to get that out of it. But I think once we go to the older age groups, we tend to yeah squeeze the enjoyment out of it, which I think is not that, I mean, that's not always happening, but sometimes, well, people tend to say we have to be more serious. And, but that also comes uh, due to um, decisions that you make in terms of training structure or training practices, uh, like a passing drill without any opposition is always less enjoyable than uh, a small sided game. And obviously, when you get go to the higher age groups, you have a little bit more uh, 
time that's being spent into uh, like drill type based sessions um, to focus on technique solely. Um, but in terms of enjoyment implemented in the sessions that I would like to deliver, I always try to have a decision making element in it, which makes it a little bit more challenging and then hopefully also a little bit more enjoyable for players because I think at the end of the day, that's, that's what it's about. Especially if I look the way I played when I was younger and also now my coaching coaching career, if I don't enjoy what I do, people eventually burn out. Yeah, I think it's an interesting topic because like in the US, we've got coaches that as you almost go up the levels, it, the coach becomes more serious and in fun, enjoyment, laughter, humor, whatever you want, kind of disappears. But it's, we almost, do you, do you think that enjoyment is sometimes misrepresented as fun, you know, as like, oh, they want to play tag or they want to have a laugh, when really enjoyment is something that players want to be stimulated, they want to be able to think, they want to be able to express themselves, we just get it mixed up. Yeah, like fun and enjoyment is not always the same thing. Like I, I enjoy when I see my team playing better from week to week. And that, that all, that's not always related to that they're playing joyful. Um, so in terms of that, it could be uh, misinterpreted. Like enjoyment is not just, ah, uh, we'll just play, let them play small-sided games and they pick the teams or whatever. I, I get pure joy from people that um, improve week on, week on in terms of the structures that we put on. And then they, the players get better and better and, and better. And then if we can have a positive impact on on their playing career, but also their like personality and uh, yeah, personal development. That's something that I enjoy. And that's not always fun because as you know, in development, there's, there are ups and downs. It's talent development is not a linear system. So in terms of getting better on the long term and then enjoying it on the long term, you will have dips. So not everything can be fun. Or not everything will be fun. We try to make everything as fun as possible. But once you get to a more senior level, you have to be serious. Otherwise, you you can't yeah you can't just take the piss with your career because then you will not have enjoyment on the long term. That's the way I I view it. Congratulations on the new role as performance coach at Fortuna Sittard. Thank you can, very much. Can you talk a little bit about what your role entails there? Yeah, it's, it's basically like nowadays you see a lot of head of performers or head of high performance or performance manager or performance director um, coming along in sports. But it's more now it's it's a combination of being a fitness coach and a sports scientist because it's a new uh, it's not a new club anymore. But in terms of you have to see it as a new club because it hasn't been at the highest level for 16 years. It almost went bankrupt two years ago. So this is a position that I haven't had before. So you, you can basically see it as a fitness coach delivering on-field strength conditioning and off-field strength conditioning, but combining that with a sports science side of things, analyzing GPS, advising coaches on periodization, when to, for example, play more 11v11 or more uh, smaller uh, principles, four against four, three against three, and trying to advise it from that perspective. So, and then also, looking at player well-being, doing some subjective wellness questionnaires to see whether they're coping with our training or whether they're not, or whether we have to make changes. So in a nutshell, that's basically what it entails for the season. 
your background in sports science is a, an evidence-based approach, um, but tactical and the freedom of player development is not always evidence-based. So how do you balance the both, the kind of the intuition with coaching, the art of coaching and the science of coaching? Yeah, so basically first you have to see what a head coach wants. And then from there on, you try to collect data with the GPS and see what it does with the players eventually. So that's evidence-based making recommendations. Okay, maybe this, this player has to do less. Um, but the beauty with the system that we have now is that we can link it to our video. And so we can look back at our games and now actually see, we can input the GPS data in the video uh, analysis system, and then we can code our game. So eventually what I want to grow towards is that, okay, when we're attacking in the front third, what does that our data look like? And then when we're training our uh, attacking in the front third in the training session, what does our data look like? So try to see if we're really training uh, game specific or not, or whether we have to change a few things. So in that respect, we're trying to make the tactical data also a little bit more evidence-based trying to implement also some research, for example, high crosses is not really evident to score goals. Maybe we have to put a cutback 45 degrees, which is more evident to score goals and those kind of things we're trying to put together with the physical data and then eventually to have more like a realistic approach also from our evidence, yeah, evidence-based uh, data really. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very, very good. So it's, it's almost you're trying to make the tactical more evidence-based through video analysis. When you look at the World Cup, if you build an evidence-based approach to tactics, is there a danger that they become predictable? And is that a bad thing? Yeah, that's obviously a danger in it because uh, I think that's also a danger with your tactical periodization model if you take your principles to uh, yeah, too serious because you need to give freedom to your players to execute the game and you can't always predict what's going to happen. And I think you have to give your players options what to do and then eventually later on educate them whether that was the right decision or not. I think creativity is also linked to that, like creative players always do things that we unexpect. That's what we call creative players. And if we, <laughs> if we, take too much uh, data into tactics um, and it becomes too predictable, I think other teams can prepare themselves better and then you'll, I think you're, you're less likely maybe to win a game or to get a point from the opposition. I think, I don't know, it's interesting to see that the, the teams that were highly evolved in the last few years now actually didn't, didn't perform well, like a, like a team like Germany. Maybe they can highly predictable, they didn't, they didn't evolve. So you can take data into tactics, but then you, I think the key thing as a nature is that you have to keep evolving, otherwise you die. Yeah, and then almost then putting that into to coach development where, you know, the, how do you feel about this, this, again, the science we've, in terms of information and awareness of what's going on with the, with the science, coaching has progressed immensely over the past 10 years, but do you feel that it's come somewhat as a cost from a loss of personalities in the coaching or a loss of maybe a quality of, of communication or intuition? Uh, that's a good thing. I mean, I think that's position, uh, 
specific to the situation. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of coaches still do things based on gut feeling and intuition. I think that's always going to be involved in coaching. You, you don't want to be a robot and be predictable and okay, if I say this, you know, I know it's going to react like this. It's not, it's not like that. The game's dynamic and people that you work with are dynamic as well. So coaching is a, is an art, but should not be too scientific in terms of, if you know what I mean, you also have to be yourself. Players have to be themselves and not think too much about, uh, about a potential outcome. And you'll have different personalities as players, as coaches. So I think that you'll always have that. Um, I think the term well, it's been recently coming up in football I don't know if that's also in the US but it's, it's the term laptop coach like the people that come from a, a non-professional football background and then trying to get involved in the coaching but I think I think it's a bit wrong because if you look at those people that are being called like that they've got like 10 or 15 years of coaching or teaching experience and that's that's why they're good coaches it's more um i think if you nagelsmann also said it uh, it's 70 percent social competence and 30 percent tactics so if you take the social side and the uh, coaching and teaching side out of it, the equation then i think you won't be successful how do you balance giving your players the the information without bombarding them with too much numbers or too much information is it? I think it's 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 got to come from the players. Mm-hmm. Like now we have a GPS system. They've never worked with a GPS system. Um, I'm not going to give them data straight away. If they want, they can come and ask. And if we as coaches see something like, like for example, a player sprints forward in in the 85th minute, but he doesn't do it in the 75th minute when he has to defend then we sit down with the player and then we can show them the stats like this and here you make a sprint above 35 kilometers an hour or that above 30 kilometers an hour is a bit more realistic in the 85th minute but 10 minutes before that you don't even try to run backwards so you can't tell me that you're tired so you have to like then we use the data to sit down with the player and use the video as well to educate and listen your task is also when we don't have the ball to defend and we see in our data that you don't do that. Improve that. So obviously, when you come from having nothing in terms of monitoring, you can't just start every, doing everything. Uh, yesterday or the day before, I showed them a video of what they do at Norwich City with their sports science and what it entails to be a professional footballer at that club. But they basically throw everything in there from blood testing to uh, urine samples. Um, injury uh, prevention screening, etc., etc. So we are not going to go from zero to be doing all of that. We have to see what's efficient and what we what data are we going to use. So now we also implemented a few wellness questionnaires: muscle soreness, sleep quality, appetite, etc. So five questions that they have to fill in before training and then now we're going to look at it okay eventually maybe we go back to three we have to see what's efficient and then what we what we use to be effective whenever you're building the relationships then with the players is it is it a risk that you can come at them with too much 
as well you know is it is it a risk that you can approach it almost in too much of an analytical point of view where you have to sometimes sit down take different personalities into account um get the setting right is there a, is there a lot of informal communication with that as well currently yeah yeah well it depends how you collect your data like um the last few years before i came to fortuna Sitted, um we didn't have an option to actually for players to log in on an app and fill the questions in themselves so then i just walked into the change room asked players how are they doing and asked them one question how are you feeling a awesome b brilliant c damaged uh, c cool d damaged e exhausted and the f you can fill that in yourself and then you could see from each player sometimes would always say they are cool, they're feeling normal, they're feeling normal, but some other players will always say they're awesome. But you have to look at the change. So basically just shaking your player's hand and looking at body language. And I think that like the communication between player and coach is key. You can't just take information off, uh, off the app and see, okay, now nah, he's tired, he should be doing less. I always use that data to go and speak to the player. What's up? Uh, maybe his kid's sick. Okay, maybe speak to the doctor and maybe he can help you out with some uh, medication for your kid. So the, always, uh, the way I like to use, uh, use data is to actually have a conversation with the players. This is great because I think it's, uh, I think as coaches sometimes at the pro level, we, and I think this is why we misuse technology, like coming from someone who, would you know I, like I, I'm easily sold on someone who comes in and say like here's a GPS system you can do X Y and Z and I think wow this is great let's buy it um, and I think this happens a lot in the US where we where we we almost we're convinced that if we get it it's going to immediately work the information will immediately work but what you're mm -hmm. saying there is you have to basically uh, combine it with reading people reading tactical systems, um, consistency, not just throwing information all the time. Yeah, correct. Right. What about, so on the other side of that, what about a, a coach who, you know, is sitting there, a, a high school coach or a club coach who is sitting there, well, it's easy for him to do this here because he has a budget and he's got all this technology. What, what about a coach that doesn't have any technology? How do they get the physical component, improve that aspect of the game? Well, I know session RP is an easy system to use if you don't, if you don't have a budget to buy heart rate monitors or GPS. Um, um, in my opinion, GPS is useless if you don't have anyone who can interpret it anyway. Um, so if you have a computer with Excel and you collect session RPE, which is the RPE ready perceived exertion multiplied by training duration, then you already have a measurement of your players individually and you can use that um, number also to plan your sessions. And that's what we've been doing for the past few years is that, okay, today we want to hit a four, which is a somewhat hard session on average, and we're going to train 90 minutes. And then afterwards we can see whether the players actually rated that session on average as a four or not, or whether there are any outliers above or below. And then you also need to understand, okay, this player perceived the game a little bit harder than others. But he played as a center midfielder and normally you play center back and then that then you can understand why he actually gave you a higher score because he's not used to playing in that position or other players uh, might not be used to the training intensity because they're older or younger than average so i i would recommend definitely using session rpe um, 
because that gives you at least a, at least something which is yeah, not high cost and you just use Excel to to implement it. You just need a little bit of time to actually look at it. You know, we're now in the stage of a lot of coaches at this moment in time are in this, the pre-season stage, um, yeah. yourself included. How do you recommend, you know, at the youth level, combining the physical and the tactical? Because again, we're, we're somewhat isolated still in our training methods, aren't we, in the in general coaching community where we, we look at fitness as run around the pitch, we look at tactical yeah. as, as walkthrough. Um, any tips on that? Yeah, I would say try look at the time that you've got per week to train with the kids. Um, if you have two sessions a week, I would say running around is useless if you want to play soccer. Uh, that's um, that's not really helping. I think um, trying to play with the ball as much as possible, and then you come back to enjoyment again. You'll have more buy-in from your players, and then you'll you'll see that the training intensity will actually be higher than when you just go run around. Besides that, football is a is a stop-start game, so just running around one place is, is useless anyway. Just for general conditioning, it'll help, or in terms of uh, rehab. But um, yeah, I would say try to combine as much as possible, and then you come back to the holistic approach of training. Is that <laughs> try to implement things as much as possible? Because if you do technical skills without any perception or decision-making moment, then you're just training the ex execution. But the execution in the game is always depending on the, the perception and decision that the player makes. So if you don't take those two out of the equation, the execution can't be, uh, will not be as realistic as in a game situation, whether it's an opponent in front of you. I think what you'll have to do is if players or, or kids, whether, uh, whether it's juniors or even seniors, when they can't execute certain tasks technically, you just have to change the, the rules of the game. You have to play with the opposition. So if if the if their passing is struggling, you would say then just put less of an emphasis on it or compromise the quality of it? Is is that what you mean by that? Well, um, okay. First of all, you have to look at the, that, that there's a difference between training effects on uh, within a training and long-term transfer of training to a game. Um, I think some most coaches look too much when they look at tech, uh, improving technical skills. They look too much to have an effect within one session, whilst it, it might be better to more, uh, uh, for example, have more objectives in one session, but then don't have a massive training effect in one session. But then in the long term, you have better retention of that skill and better transfer of that skill into the uh, into the training. So that so that's first of all. And the other thing is like. What I've done with, um, not saying that what I've done is, is a perfect situation, but an example of how you can play around with the rules of the game is that um, I've had on the seventh team where we did Halloween football, uh, three against three, and the team that did not have the ball had to walk around like uh, zombies. So <laughs> in that way, you already limit the opposition and you give the players on the ball more time to actually execute skill or execute pass. That's genius. That's absolute genius. So you have to think like obviously that rule will not help with it on the 16s because you have to <laughs> adapt your coaching in terms of the group that you're working with. But that's just an example how you can yeah how you can play around with it. 
moving on to like your your travels and how that's impacted you personally working in Dubai Al Shabab Al Arabi probably messed that up um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean what what did you learn most from that environment in Dubai as a coach um, honestly Dubai wasn't the most massive learning impact on me I think the two years in Saudi Arabia has been a more bigger impact on me as a coach um, because that was the first time that I actually was working with kids that did not speak the same language as I did and normally would we would have an assistant who would translate um, so if you should imagine a second week I was there the assistant wasn't there so I had to teach on the nines on my own so then you really look okay look at your session you think what the hell was I trying to do there because they didn't speak the language they didn't pick it up and it's like okay this is this is not working so then I got more interest in, in terms of trying to set up the session in that way that the session teaches the, the kids what I want them to learn or what they want to learn because that was also sometimes the case where they actually took uh, ownership of the sessions and they designed the sessions themselves and then besides that um, I looked at whether some players knew what the session was about and then I used them as my assistant to actually explain it to others and demonstrate it to them. And I think the biggest thing that I learned is that there, that there are different ways of working, especially with a different uh, culture and different religion. Um, and you try, and from a personal point of view, uh, yeah, you, you respect that more when you've been there. Um, and from yeah, but coming but coming back from a coaching perspective, like teaching kids that don't speak the language will definitely change your way of coaching. I, I know it's it's not easy to do, but I would definitely rank it, recommend it to every coach. Going to a country where you don't speak the language and then see whether you can still execute your sessions as you would in your country where you do speak the language because that changes your perspective of of your session design really that i mean that's what it did with me eventually i learned to speak the football language in arabic so that made it a little bit easier um also to yeah, know what the kids are saying when they're playing and then give them short uh, words or ask them questions in, in the game or in the session and then go on to cape town city fc what was what was unique about South African football culture? Let I think it. uh, um, it's a big country, and I think you compare it a little bit to Saudi Arabia. That um, people like football there, but the structures are lacking. I think it was a big thing already for for Saudi Arabia that they've been at the World Cup, and if they and there's a big football culture in that country, so if they actually keep consistency somewhere in the youth development structures they can actually be a big footballing country in in asia and then maybe also in the world cup again and then when you look at south africa that i think consistency and structure is words that probably don't really fit in their yeah in their language <laughs> if you will ask me and there's a high turnover of coaches but i, I think that as is in probably in English football as well. But 
knowing that there is no structure at youth level makes it even worse. And I think there's a big difference in South Africa with, I think still with the rich and poor, football is still very important, very big in the, in the townships, but kids don't get the opportunity to actually play at a professional club or even an amateur club. Um, so there is very high potential there in terms of technically, but then when you go back to consistency and in terms of how the, and then you have to look at how the country is run as well, when there's uh, a lack of discipline, sometimes corruption, and those things you also see in going down to other levels, whether that's business or football. And those are the things is, yeah, you'll run into when you work there. But from a technical point of view, and I think from a physical point of view as well, there's big potential in South Africa. But there is a lack of education, and whether that's lack of education of nutrition, and then lack of structure to, yeah, to actually play the game more regularly, maybe with better players and higher age group as well. Last, last part of the interview, um, tactical periodization for coaches who are not aware of it, how, mm -hmm. would you, how would you define it? I think tactical periodization is, um, uh, originally is a model that came from Portugal and it evolved a little bit when it came over to Spain because I think they do it slightly different there. But I think you have to look more at the, the way I look at it is that you look at your football identity. So get rid of the word tactical periodization, look at football identity, and then you have certain aspects that have an impact on your football identity, which are the moments of the games, the moment, the moments of the game, attack, defense, and then transition between the two, and then also set pieces. But based on that, you're going to create your own principles of play. That means how do I want my team to play as a collective, which is the three lines. Then you look at how do I want my team to cooperate between the two lines, so the attack midfielders together and the midfielders and defenders together. So then you speak more about uh, cooperation between two lines. And then there's uh, smaller principles, other principles. There's the cooperation between one line and actually the executions of one player within those principles. So that's basically four levels of your principles that you have. And then you have to look at, okay, what kind of formation does that fit? So there's a difference between structural and functional formation. The structural is the one you see at kickoff, really. And the functional is the way it fluctuates during the game. Maybe you attack in a 3-4-3, but you defend in a 5-4-1 when you're in your own half. And then the other things, like obviously the, the principles of play, they, those are related to uh, your ideas of the game as a coach. So maybe you're a bit more defensive minded and other uh, coaches a bit more attacking minded. So your idea how the game should be played has an impact on those principles and your formations. And then on top of that, your <clears throat> you have the characteristics of the players and the characteristics and possibilities of the coaches that you're working with that have an impact on that. So, for example, maybe you don't have enough attacking players and you can't play 4-3-3, uh, so maybe you have to change your structural and functional formation to suit your, and maybe uh, to suit your principles, or maybe you even have to change your principles. 
Um, so those characteristics of players, but also coaches that you're working with, have a big impact on that. And then I think the two biggest ones that have an impact on your football identity is the is the is the culture of the club and the surroundings and maybe even the uh, culture of of the country. Because there are numerous examples where, like for example. Man United, there's a culture of performing and winning trophies. So you will have to, when you come in there, you can't just play on a draw, which has been the case maybe <laughs> a few times with Mourinho. Um, or, and even with Van Gaal, it wasn't, it wasn't as significant as with um, Sir Alex Ferguson, but it's not easy to take over that role anyway. So those things you actually have to take into account and and then use all those aspects um, alongside your coaching philosophy. So your football identity, and then how do you want to work as a coach? How are you going to influence people and uh, eventually get the maximum output of them? I think those kind of factors have an impact on your training methodology. And I think tactical periodization is more of a training methodology, really. So. When you look at, uh, but they see it more as a philosophy. So it depends how you interpret it, because you can use tactical periodization to periodize your week using um, a little more um, sub principles. So working on two lines on a Tuesday, working on three lines on the on the Wednesday, and then on the Thursday you work more in your attack and defense on the one line, and then uh, Friday you do a bit more analytical to decrease the intensity and then. In put it all together for the game on Saturday. So I think like for people that don't know it, um, I think starting with creating your football identity as first and coaching philosophy, in my opinion, is much more important than what you do in the field. A lot of factors to take into account there. Um, yeah. And, and I was, you know, I was talking to um, Erwin van Bennekom, who's a, there's a Dutch coach over here at, at Duke recently, and, and he was talking about where we were, we were both kind of agreeing that so many game models over here are, are starting to replicate each other. So even though the teams play a lot different when you watch them, if you talk to the coach, they would say, yeah, this is our, our identity, is that we build, we pass, we press, etc. It's, it's a bit too general, I suppose. So mm -hmm. how would you... How would you suggest that we can improve that or become a little bit more specific and challenge coaches a little bit more when they're creating that tactical identity? I think you should ask the question, why do you do it? And I think the beauty of the game model is that you can link it, link it at, yeah, to your club situation. And I think it might be true. Everybody wants to play positional uh, style of play nowadays. And I think... Um, it might not be realistic with the group of players that you've got. Um, so coming back to what we started the interview with is reflection comes from asking hard questions. So if you are not able to ask yourself hard questions, you need people around you that ask your hard questions and don't have a yes man next to you because that will not improve you as a coach. And then you will not change your game model either because I like this and I know Spain's doing it. We should be doing it too. It works for them, so it should be working for us. You have a presentation. You've generously uh, shared a presentation on, at the, on your Twitter feed. It's a tagged tweet. It's your, your first one up. 
on um, on U eleven and U twelve. It's your program you did model you did in Dubai, I believe. Um, no, no, it's in Saudi. In Saudi Arabia, sorry. Um, is is you know a lot of coaches again? We talk about the tactical side over in the US. Well, we have to wait to their sixteen, seventeen. You know, is you you're implemented that with U eleven, U twelve. Is that that's normal for you? For your opinion, do you think that that's that can be implemented at that age? I think if you look at uh, the holistic approach and technical, tactical, physical, and mental aspect, I, I think when you start with younger age groups, the tactical aspect is less important. So your coaching points or the setup of your session should be designed to have like profound skill development, and then when that alongside maybe a hidden tactical subject which they don't really know they're working on but then later on they still implement that in the game so i think your coaching points or like um, the importance of teaching the technical side of it it's, it's still key at that age group but you can still design uh, an own identity with that with those players i believe what what's your thoughts then on on the feedback aspect of it, you know, even at the professional level now, how is that delivered on a, individually from a tactical point of view? Well, currently I'm not in a position at the moment to speak too much about tactics with players. I'll get more involved in the coaching side and combining the physical data. Um, but I mean, showing videos of what, what you've done, like, going back to how I've done it in the past is that looking at what the best decision should be and actually showing videos and then explaining what what we're trying to achieve as a team and what our principles are and then trying to educate players on that. So in terms of giving feedback, try to use a video-based approach really. Um, and I think players enjoy that best because then they can relate it better. Not everyone remembers their situation as good as as others. Although pattern recognition is a is a key element normally in talented uh, players, but we don't always have the chance to actually work with highly talented players. You recently went to the international conference on tactical periodization. Um, sounded like a phenomenal opportunity to learn and develop. How did you find it? How was it? Yeah, it was very inspiring, and but I think for people that didn't know much about tactical periodization that were in the audience, that, that would be difficult really to follow. And I think a lot of people that, like, I mean, Vito Frade in, in particular, and Jorge Rice, who also just recently uh, released a new book about tactical periodization because they, they, they like, there's a little bit of evolution of the model that came out now. Uh, but if you look at that book and go through it, it's it's mostly just words. So it's highly philo philosophical and theoretical, and you need to be able to understand the practice side of it to actually put the theory into practice. And I think in Portugal in particular, that was a very nice example of how they did it. And there are a lot of people actually also saying they're using tactical periodization, but that According to the Portuguese model, there are only a few that actually use the tactical periodization as it was originally meant for. Um, but it was very nice to see in terms of um, how 
principles actually could come back into a game on the long term so and how they were using their training sessions but the biggest thing they spoke about you will not believe it was not tactics but that was cultural influence interesting from from the club or from the country both 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 so there were examples of tactical realization used at two clubs in argentina and then also two clubs in, in portugal and then one club compared it even how they use it in england so and and it's more is it more challenging in those situations or or what was the general theme awareness yeah, well not only that it's not just culture of the of the club but yeah mainly culture of the club and players that you're working with so trying to copy an identity from one club to the other is not easy because you always have different players to work with so you'll have to make concessions in your own identity and i think that's also going to be a quality of a coach to be able to change his philosophy or way of working and not mainly his philosophy but more the principles uh, yeah to suit to suit the situation what coaches today in in the game you know you mentioned uh, there's only a few of them that are doing it at the i suppose the specific level of the Vito Friday would would specify as tactical periodization what what are, who are the top coaches today operating at the high levels that are that are good role models for coaches to watch teams play um that's a good one i think the names of Mourinho weren't used um but it was more the people that actually wrote books about it as well but uh pellegrino had an assistant of it has an assistant named javier tamarit he also wrote a book about what is tactical periodization so that's one of them um i think rio ave in portugal is also the same club as using it i think an interesting one is the uh lille in france uh-huh. okay but i think everybody interprets tactical periodization maybe in a slightly different way so maybe there are a few clubs that still use it but maybe not as it was originally meant but then i think i also give it a slight twist in the way i like to use it so in terms of not mentioning it tactical periodization but calling it football identity um but yeah the assistant that was uh, at Lille and then eventually took over uh, from Bielsa when Bielsa uh, was sacked Aige, that was a very mind-blowing presentation that that I've seen from him in terms of using implementing tactical periodization so that's definitely a team that I would be keeping an eye on and yeah i think that's um, it's it's tough to say from outside because when we were uh, when i was at Saudi Arabia we had Fito Pereira as head coach Mm-hmm. He's also coming from the same school, Porto, and also implementing tactical periodization. But that didn't work for him in that culture. So I don't know where he is now, whether he's able to implement tactical periodization in the culture that he's working in. And the other one is Vilas Boas. Right. Have you ever seen him work? I have, actually. And I've seen a session from him uh, in Qatar when he was there with in St. Petersburg very humble guy he actually came to us like without knowing us and asking what we thought of the session <laughs> and, and then he he explained what he was trying to work on and whether that would came out whether we saw that and stuff like that so yeah, that was a wow that was interesting to see because not every coach yeah, from a club like that would do that 
oh, that's an insane level of humility, isn't it, for a, yeah. a, a coach to come over to the sideline and just ask people what they thought? As, yeah. Wow. It kind of tells you a little bit about him as well. Yeah, definitely. 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 Um, last one up, just to, you know, if I give you, I suppose I, I headhunted you at some stuff form of your career. I gave you I had billions of, and I wanted to build a club, a Champions League club. So I hired you to come in and say, all right, Guido, give us, I, I want to be the best tactical team in the world. Um, what would your, I mean, in terms of an infrastructure and staff at the pro level, um, what, what would be your first protocol? Like the first person I would get in? Would it be, yeah, so, so maybe I'll be more specific. Would it be a top-level head coach? Would it, be a, would it be an analyst group department? Would it be scouting? Would it be spending X amount on a centre-forward? Just curious to see what you would prioritise in that area. Um, depends what you call it. I don't know what you would call it in uh, in the US, but maybe like a sporting director or a technical director, CEO, um, like the right board that can implement the right culture mm -hmm. and the identity of the club. Is that is that like a, a direct? Is there's some of these roles coming out now? A director of tactical methodology. Is that similar to that? Is that what you're saying, or is that more? No, no. This is more on a high level. This is not just methodology. Like. Mm. Um, You've got like in in Spain, it's normal that where you have a head of methodology in the academy. But this is more overall. This is not just um, macro. I think, yeah, it's more macro. I think it would be GO, like general or GM, even uh, if I wouldn't be that person that you bring in. But <laughs> mm. um, someone that can put structure, not just from a football's perspective, but from a whole club, and then the culture and identity of the game should be, yeah, I mean, should be similar on the long term. That's what I would be working towards because those people should be looking at long term whilst a head coach or an analyst can be there short term. Brilliant. Guido, thank you so much. This is fantastic. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Learned a lot in an hour and appreciate yeah. your time and energy. Yeah, thank you for inviting me again. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much to Guido for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, really, really interesting. And I got a lot from that in terms of kind of putting into context what a comfort zone is. And we always talk about you know, pushing our players outside their comfort zone. And as coaches, yeah, we get outside our comfort zone. But it's only when you really speak to someone who's challenging themselves at different languages and challenging their level of self-awareness with studying uh, reading more about it, finding more about themselves, how they influence a culture, just not even a more holistic approach to the game, but just a more holistic approach to coach development. Um, that I, I was really inspired by that there. He's, Guido looks to improve himself um, and, and is constantly asking questions about how he's impacting his environment. And if he's not impacting his environment the way he wants to, it looks as if or sounds as if he then brings that back to himself and I think that's a big thing for coaches. Sometimes if things aren't going the way we want to, we blame our, you know, our, the ability of the players or maybe this, the environment that we're the challenges with we have in that environment. And 
And I think if you really want to get to the next level, if you really want to go into depth in coaching, you have to bring it back to how can I improve? What can I get from this? And we've got a few other podcasts on the way that are that are unbelievable with similar themes, challenges in coaching. It's not easy. The, the, the level that you want to work at uh, sometimes brings a different set of problems and, and the environment side of it always brings those problems as well in different ways. So the more aware we are, the, the, the better our skill set and yeah the more diversity in our skill set the better ability we will have to deal with those as well so thanks so much to Guido like I said really really enjoyed it self-awareness on a different level awareness of the game on a different level um, so a, a lot of a lot to take away there we'd love to hear what you think about it too uh, was there something that resonated with you was there something in it that you, know, you wanted to talk about or wanted to debate or argue anything at all as always gary at modernsoccercoach.com if you want to email twitter at gary Kernine, instagram at gary Kernine. always appreciate you listening before you shoot off please give it a a rating on the itunes page or just help spread the word uh, always love people reaching out always love people you know saying that they got something from it uh, it means a lot and always appreciate you listening Thanks so much. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.